Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 58 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Anne Rice, author of the best-selling Vampire Chronicles, which include Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned. She's also written novels about other supernatural monsters, such as witches and mummies. In 2005, she turned to writing Christian fiction, starting with her novel Christ the Lord, Out of Egypt. In 2010, she announced that she was leaving Christianity. Her new werewolf novel, The Wolf Gift, marks her return to supernatural horror. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Anne Rice. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Okay, so your new novel, The Wolf Gift, is about werewolves. So first of all, just what made you want to write a book about werewolves? Actually, uh, somebody suggested the idea to me, and it was at, at a very good time. I was working on a novel about Atlantis, and it wasn't working. And I was very bogged down, and I really wanted something new to do. And a friend of mine, an email buddy, Jeff Easton, who's the producer of the TV show White Collar, he just happened to write me an email and say he'd seen a documentary on werewolf legends and fiction, and that if I ever wanted to tackle that subject, he would really be there to buy the book. And for some reason, that struck home with me. I thought, well, why don't I try that? Why don't I, for the first time, really give that a go and see if I can do it in my own special way? And I began to think about it, and, and within a matter of months, uh, I had the novel The Wolf Gift. It was just a wonderful um, detour for me or, or turn in the road. I'm, I'm very grateful to Jeff. I've recently asked him if he had any other bright ideas he'd like hmm. to suggest. Okay, and so the story opens with your protagonist, Ruben, visiting a mansion called Nidic House, uh, which is very vividly described. Just how did you come up with all the details of, about the house? Well, uh, actually, I pronounce it Nidex Point, uh, but, the, you know, that house is really a dream house, and it's based on all the big houses that I've had the privilege to own and renovate in the last 15 or 20 years. I've lived in a series of absolutely wonderful houses in, in New Orleans, mainly, but also a very big, beautiful old house in Oakland before I ever went south. And I don't live in any house like that now. I live in a small writer's retreat, and the idea is to keep things simple here, you know. But I I, I started to write about Nidek Point, and I just started to create a house out of all those houses that I'd known and loved and experienced in intimate ways. And for me, that house is really a character in the novel. Uh, so it's probably not giving too much away to say that Ruben finds himself turning into a werewolf. Um, yes. you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, most stories make being a werewolf seem like a curse, but this book really presents it as something pretty attractive. Uh, why did you decide to take that approach? Well, I've done that with vampires, and I've done that to some extent with witches and with the mummy. Tried to turn the whole thing around and say, what if this was really enticing and sensuous and wonderful and not at all the way it's been presented in the past. So I really just carried that through with werewolves, too. I mean, my vampires, Lestat and Louis and Armand, they look more like angels than, than the feral Dracula. And they're not repulsive like Dracula. They're very seductive and beautiful. To me, that added to the drama, to the tragic dilemma of the vampire, that 
immortality in in the form of the vampire gave him so many so much power and so many gifts and so much charm and glamour and i felt i wanted to explore the same idea with wolf gifts what you know there had to be a seductive side to the power of feeling yourself gain strength and your muscles get stronger and your limbs get longer and your and your whole body becoming vulnerable with a soft wonderful coat of hair uh, and 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 you get fangs and you get claws and you're able to um, really destroy your enemies with uh, without much thought. And I thought that's got to be seductive. That's got to be great. And these are, these are all decisions authors make. I mean, clearly, for example, the person who made the movie The Howling decided, or, or an American Werewolf in, in London in particular, decided to make the transformation painful. But I just didn't see that it had to be painful. And I wanted to explore it uh, in another way. And and another thing, too, that I noticed in, in all the werewolf uh, films that I watched, uh, clearly the transformation into werewolf in particular is a metaphor for adolescence and the sexual transformation of a child. You have a basically neuter gender person who's on an equal footing with all other neuter gender people, and then suddenly adolescence comes, and one child turns into a woman, another child turns into a man. Both experience sexuality, and sexuality really turns their world upside down. I mean, it certainly did for me as a teenager. It destroyed everything and made possible a whole different life. And, and I, I felt that clearly the werewolf myth has been explored like that. You can see it in Ginger Snaps. You you can see it in almost any werewolf movie. And um, that really intrigued me. Um, I wanted to explore that, again, it, it, the seductive side of that. Take a young man who didn't have a lot of personal confidence, who was very much looked down on by those who loved him, didn't take him seriously, so really sort of sneered at him. And, and see what it felt like for that young man to gain this power, this unique uh, ability to be a man-wolf and to live a certain powerful and secretive life that really put him quite far away from those who had denigrated him and had contempt for him. Uh, so in many ways, this story resembles the classic superhero story with uh, Reuben fighting crime and keeping his identity secret. Uh, do you see the wolf gift as an example of uh, a superhero story? Oh, yeah, very much so. I, I like that idea. I wanted to explore that idea. I love graphic novels. I love superhero stories. I, I love all of it. I was in the front row of the first Superman movie to see what they were going to do with that, you know, humanizing Clark Kent and, and Superman. And I wanted very much to do that. And, and again, it felt authentic to me. It felt like, well, if I changed into a werewolf in San Francisco in 2011, I might go out and kill bad people, too. You know, especially if I was conscious, and my hero is conscious. He's still Reuben when he becomes a wolf. He doesn't just black out and go tear people to pieces at random, you know, like like Lon Chaney Jr., for example, or, or Benicio Del Toro in, in the remake of The Wolfman. He's conscious, so he, he goes after the bad guys, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, actually, a number of your works have been adapted into comics, uh, and it looks like a, there's a few uh, new ones uh, coming out. Uh, there's an adaptation of Interview with a Vampire and Servant for the Bones, uh, or Servant of the Bones. Uh, can you tell us about those? Well, IDW did Servant of the Bones, and I think they did a great job. They were very faithful to the book. I like their art. They got the darkness of it, and I'm, I really like that adaptation. I really do, and I would love to work with IDW on other books. Um, I haven't seen the Yen uh, interview with the vampire yet. They've done it from Claudia's point of view, 
they negotiated with us to get the right to do that, to make an, a real adaptation, like a, another dramatic adaptation by doing Claudia's view of the story of Interview with the Vampire. And I'm curious as to how that will work. I think that's quite a legitimate thing to do. And uh, I was happy giving them the license to do that. And what I've seen of their art is gorgeous. It tends to be more representational and less abstract than some graphic novel art. And that's really what I like in graphic novel art. I like representational, uh, fully proportioned human beings and intricate detail and, and so forth. So I have high hopes for that young adaptation. I'd love to see a lot more of my work go into graphic novels. I hope The Wolf Gift will go into a graphic novel. I've, I've always loved the form. I loved it when I was a kid. Uh, so I thought it was interesting in The Wolf Gift how you have Ruben acquiring fiction and movies about werewolves as he's trying to puzzle out his condition. Uh, how did you decide which werewolf books and movies you'd have him come across? I mentioned the movies, I guess, that I liked and the stories I liked, but, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of material there. There is a finite end to werewolf movies. And, of course, he likes he likes Beauty and the Beast by Cocteau, just as I do. But he finds it disturbing to see the beast walking around as a beast in beautiful velvet clothes and speaking, because that most resembles what Reuben is in the book. He doesn't wear clothes, no, but he speaks and can make love and can, and can think and reason and even sing and dance, really, as a, as a man-wolf and drive a car and use his iPhone. Uh, I mean, in particular, uh, Ruben finds that some of the names associated with Nidek Point are drawn from these French short stories about werewolves. Uh, are, are those real stories? Oh, yeah, yeah. Those stories I reference are real. Yeah. The Man Wolf is a real story by two French authors, and they do speak of a Nidek in there. And and that's in the public domain. It's an old story. And um, I thought that it would be interesting that you know, we don't want to give spoilers in this interview, but, but I, I was playing with the idea that immortals in time would have to have some way before the Internet to signal each other, and that one way they might use is by taking names that would cue to other werewolves <laughs> that they were werewolves. If they wanted to meet others and get together with others, they could take a, they could take a name that was like a code name. And so some of the people in this novel do that. They take names from classic werewolf stories in order to signal each other. I didn't really get into their motives so much in the novel. I could do that in a sequel. It's also the the book takes a very scientific approach to werewolves, and Ruben sort of tries to puzzle everything out in terms of the science involved. Did you do any sort of scientific research into wolves or biology in order to write those parts of the book? I did, but um, uh, one of the things I had to deal with first off was that DNA would be a real problem for a werewolf unless there was some reason why his DNA couldn't be obtained. And so without a spoiler here, I want to say that that was something I had to work on. Um, you know, what would the DNA of Reuben in, in man-wolf form be like? Would it be partially uh, animal and partially human? And what were the differences? And I do mention some of the differences, like the saliva, you know, that, that they first detect indicates animal saliva because animals do have different enzymes in their saliva from what we have. Dogs do. Um, wolves do. And I feel like the story's better if you're dealing with those constraints. If you're, if you're theorizing that the change, for example, is probably hormonal. And it, and it, cause hormones do, you know, actually regulate our growth, how tall we get, when we get 
pubic hair, when we get hair under our arms. I mean, all the when a man gets a beard, when his voice drops, all this is hormonal. And the schedule is influenced by hormones. So I really love playing with that idea that Ruben's transformation was hormonal, but nevertheless, there's a lot about it that he can't figure out, and neither can the other, you know, the other people in the story. I don't have a scientific mind, and I can't retain the knowledge very easily. But I love studying the science of ghosts, the science behind near-death experiences, all of this, and I love trying to include some science in here, because again, people today are naturally going to deal with this. I, I think any any real supernatural hero today, whether he's a vampire, a werewolf, a resuscitated mummy, whatever he is, is going to have to deal with the fact that scientists are going to want to catch him and study him. You know, his big enemy is not going to be Dr. Von Helsing today. It's going to be the doctor who wants to put him in a lab and, and get his blood for what it can do to cure disease or grant immortality. So, uh, I mean, what what resources do you find most helpful for the science behind ghosts and near-death experiences and stuff like that? Well, there's some wonderful books. I mean, and they have been for years on near-death experiences. And um, I read those all the time. I, I wish I had the author's names at my fingertips, but I don't. But people have um, done a number of scientific studies to try to verify that when people go out of body in a near-death experience, they really are going out of body. They, there is no natural explanation for what they're able to see and hear. They're, they're comatose or clinically dead on an operating table or in a morgue, and yet they're traveling out of body and they see things that they can report later. I just read an interesting case uh, by a doctor in Arizona about a woman who was not only dead, her body was entirely drained of blood as she, and was, she was in a phenobarbital coma, I believe, and she was being operated on, and, and yet she managed to hear and see and retain knowledge about people in the operating room. And many doctors went to that hospital where she had been in Arizona, and they studied the records, and they said there just is no physical explanation of how this woman could have known the faces and names of people in that operating room and have heard them talking about things. And, you know, there are many cases like that, actually, that are very, very well documented. And yet you have these critics out in the public arena saying, well, the near-death experience is, is just imagined or it's really caused by pheromones or it's um, the brain is filled with endorphins and chemicals. And, and it, it, those explanations don't cover it. There are too many mysterious cases. And with regard to ghosts, um, with me, it's a lot of conjecture. I'm trying to figure out what it is people see when they see a ghost. We've got piles of testimony in the world over that people see ghosts, that they see spirits. And, and it, you know, it would be foolish, I think, to dismiss all that testimony. They see something. So I'm asking myself, what is it that they see? Are they seeing a subtle body that's made up of cells that are not like the cells we're made up of? And does that mean those cells maybe evolved before ourselves evolved. I mean I love I love studying it. I love I love trying to understand it and I love reading books on the origin of life and how we've discovered forms of life we never dreamed of in thermal vents in the ocean. All all of this fascinates me and it inspires me a lot. Do you think you ever might just write a flat out science fiction novel with aliens and spaceships and anything like oh, that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm working up to it. I'm working <laughs> up to it. I want, I want to do that. I mean, I love all speculative fiction. You know, I, I really do. I love the classic Gothic monsters the most. 
the vampires, the ghosts, the witch, the mummy, the werewolf. I love those the most. I grew up on those black and white movies at the neighborhood show with Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff and, 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 uh, Dracula's daughter was the vampire movie that I saw. I, I didn't see Bela Lugosi. He was a little bit too early for me, but I saw him later on the TV late shows when I was a young adult. But I love that the most. But I also love really great science fiction. And I grew up reading really great science fiction. It it would just come into its own as a genre in the 40s and the 50s. And and I remember my sister was an avid reader, Alice Borchardt. She was also a novelist and, and wrote a number of werewolf novels, actually. And Alice used to check out the uh, science fiction books all the time from the library. And Though I couldn't keep up with her reading, I heard her talking about Richard Heinlein and Richard Matheson and, and, uh, Robert Heinlein, I think, and, and all the different authors. And, and I read a lot of those anthologies of short stories in the fifties. And as the years passed, many of those stories turned up as Twilight episodes. Twilight Zone, forgive me. Twilight Zone episodes, not Twilight. <laughs> uh, and they turned up, um, on other TV shows, The Outer Limits shows like that, and I recognized those stories and remembered them. I just uh, ordered all Richard Matheson's short stories because I wanted to revisit a lot of that material. I mean, his story, The White Silk Dress, or The Dress of White Silk, that's a little vampire talking in the first person, a child vampire. I heard that story when I was maybe a 10-year-old or 11-year-old child. I'm sure some little seed was planted there that later resulted in me writing Interview with the Vampire with the child vampire Claudio. So I owe Richard Matheson a lot. Uh, so the Wolf Gift is uh, very much set in the present day. You know, you mentioned how Ruben uses the Internet to look up his condition, and there's frequent references to iPhones and iPads. Uh, are you the sort of person who keeps up on all the latest technology? Uh, I keep up on some of it. Uh, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of slow. You know, I come from the pre-Internet generation, and it's hard for me, but I, certain, I use an iPhone and an iPad, and I use... A computer, and I have a Facebook page with 595,000 people on it, and I post on that page every day a lot, as a matter of fact. And I certainly do tons of research on the internet. But I'm not up on every single thing that comes down the pike. You know, I, I, uh, I'm a writer, and I principally do, I, I, I use what a writer can use. And I'm real happy writing on my G5, um, Macintosh computer with a 30-inch monitor. I'm not one of those people who can carry a little laptop around and write a whole novel on a tiny keyboard in a cafe. I'm not that flexible. Not yet, anyway. Uh, yeah, so speaking of Facebook, uh, you know, and you mentioned you, you're very active there. Uh, how, how would you say social media has affected your life and your career? Well, I think it's wonderful. Um, I went on Facebook a few years ago, and at the suggestion, actually, of the publicist at Knopf, she said, you might want to get a Facebook page. And I did, and then I got what's called a fan page, where you can have unlimited uh, number of people participating on your page. And for me, it's been absolutely wonderful, uh, because I have always loved my readership, and I have always loved hearing from them, and, and loved hearing what they think about the books, and Facebook gives me the ideal way to do this. I can go on the page and ask a question, you know, like, which of my books do you like the most and why? Which didn't you like and, and why? And I get, you know, a thousand posts and, and I get wonderful, inspiring answers. I feel very close to the people that I interact with and I like answering their questions too. I answer, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 questions a day on Facebook. 
And I, I was just looking at your Facebook page. I noticed you, in addition to your writing, you also sort of post about current events and, and things like that. Um, what, what sort of response do you get from people to that? Well, there's a lot of controversy on my page. I have very strong views on things. I'm an admitted Democrat. I'm an admitted liberal. I'm an admitted progressive. I support the Democratic Party because I believe in the two-party system, and we only have two. And uh, I post a lot on those things, and there's a lot of argument and a lot of dissension. I think the, the most controversial posts that I put up there have to do with organized religion and why I left it and and why I believe in separation of church and state and how concerned I am about the attacks on the separation of church and state. And we do have religious people coming on the page and blazing away, calling me everything from demonic to dark to full of hate and poison, you know, for criticizing their religion. But uh, we have great discussions, great discussions. You know, Easter Sunday, I congratulated the gays of the world on having come so far in their civil rights revolution. I said, you have really risen from centuries of oppression and happy Easter. Well, boy, did that ever cause a storm. <laughs> we had people flying on the page like banshees, you know, or furies, you know, saying, how dare you use a Christian holiday to express good wishes to gays? Well, <laughs> we had we had quite an argument, and it's still going on. People are still coming on the page and volunteering comments on this, though the, the threads have now sort of gone down the page and been buried. But the majority of what we talk about really is fiction, television, and poetry. Our, our critics may not believe that, but that it really is hmm. what we talk about. You know, they, they say all you ever do is post against religion. Well, that's really not true. I talk a lot about this being the golden age for fantasy fiction and fantasy film. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I mean, television right now is so rich with not only fantasy drama, but costume drama, historical drama, which is very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, Game of Thrones is just fabulous. I'm a great fan of that. I've got the books. I'm going to read them. Uh, I'm totally into the HBO series, and I've never seen speculative fantasy, supernatural fantasy, all of this. I've never seen it done with such high production values such great actors and such great script writers and directors. It's, you know, we always had some good fantasy films, but I mean, this is, this is really a great time in our history. Actually, you know, I saw your post on, on Facebook about uh, sort of goodwill toward the gay community, and it sort of made, your, your son Christopher is a novelist, and he's also gay and writes for The Advocate. And I was just wondering, were you always really su supportive toward gay rights, or did having Christopher as your son uh, affect your attitudes at all? Uh, well, he had no effect whatsoever because I was always completely supportive of gays. I mean, from the time I got common sense, you know, <laughs> in my early 20s. I mean, I was always very attracted to gay people. And the gay aesthetic, if there is really a separate gay aesthetic. And I found that I had a lot in common with them and that I responded the same way to movies and musicals and, 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 and singers and, and, and uh, novels as they did. I had more in common with them than I had often with straight people. And I admired their, their sensual dimension and their frankness about it. And when I wrote Interview with the Vampire, I didn't really intend for it to be a gay allegory, but it was considered a gay allegory, and some of the best uh, reviews of it that were ever written were by gay people who saw it as a gay allegory. And that was 
before Christopher was ever born. And I was very honored by all that. In fact, I would say the gays probably kept an interview with the vampire alive on the back list when it might have died otherwise. Uh, I think a lot of it was their enthusiasm for the book. Um, and, it, you know, it was kind of an underground bestseller there for a while. Not a bestseller, but it had an underground life. And then when I wrote The Vampire Was Stuck, gay readers were among the first to embrace that book. I mean, you, you mentioned that you've um, you've had some frustration in, in recent years toward organized religion and kind of um, moved away from it. Could you talk about how that happened? Well, it's such a vast subject. I mean, the bottom line of it was I returned to the Catholic Church in 1998 in the midst of a conversion, and I thought everything would be fine. Everything would work out. Um, I was happy to be believing in God again. I was happy to be feeling that, to, to know that experience. And I still believe in God at this moment. But during the 12 years that I was a Catholic and a Christian and a Christian writer, I really studied the belief system. I studied its foundational documents, the evolution of its doctrines, why it taught different things that troubled me. Uh, and things that didn't trouble me, and I, I studied its history and its influence and its activities in the present time, and I had to leave it. I left it because I felt ultimately it was a very dishonest and dishonorable belief system, that it was founded on contradictions and absurdities and out-and-out lies, and that the vast majority of Christians, as far as I could see, really didn't know their own religion didn't know its history, didn't really know its foundational documents, and did not want to talk about it critically in any way. And yet these same people would come into the public arena in America and spend millions of dollars to try to prevent gay people from getting same-sex marriage in the state of California. And I was pretty disgusted by the whole thing. Um, I came away believing that I didn't know at all whether religion was a good thing. I'm not sure I can say it is a good thing or that it's done more good than evil. I, I think maybe it's done more evil than good. And I think the search for God, the honest search for God, led me completely away from religion. Uh, and there, there's actually there's a scene in The Wolf Gift where Reuben is sort of staring up at the stars and musing about the nature of God. And his uh, ruminations there almost seem sort of to be a cosmic pantheism or something. Um, right. did, did, did any of that reflect your, your own feelings about um, oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And and you can imagine my shock when people said that it was Christian and that they didn't like it. I thought, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? The hero never utters a Christian word in the entire book. He has no Christian beliefs at all. And and yet they're saying this apparently because I was once a Christian. Uh, yeah, so one of the characters in The Wolf Gift, uh, Reuben's brother, is a Catholic priest. Uh, Why did you decide to include him in the story? Reuben goes to see Jim and, and tells him what's happening because he can bind Jim with the seal of the confessional. Jim's the one friend he can turn to who cannot tell anybody what Reuben has to say. He can't tell anyone Reuben's the man-wolf. Anybody else would become an accessory after the fact to the murders that Reuben's committed. But Reuben can tell Jim and bind him with that seal, and Jim can't tell anyone and could never be held accountable for not telling anyone. So that's what was driving that part of the plot for me. Reuben had a need to talk to somebody about this. And I also thought a Catholic priest is going to be an interesting person to talk about it morally. 
you know, and, and frankly, a supernatural hero that doesn't have a moral concern about ripping people to shreds mm-hmm. isn't very interesting to me. You know, I've always, you know, my vampires, if anything, there's much, much, much more religious talk in my vampire novels than there is in the wolf gift. And because these questions of right and wrong have always, uh, always, you know, galvanized me in my work. You know, as the novel goes on, the wolf gift separates Reuben from the rest of his family. He he remains in contact with them in the novel, and um, they're a problem. And and he loves them and he needs them, but they're also a problem. He can't tell them what's going down. There's no way he can put that responsibility on any member of his family other than Jim. I saw some um, comments online where people were saying that they felt maybe Reuben felt uh, a little bit harder to identify with because he comes from a privileged background. Uh, can, what did you think about that? I was totally amazed when I read that. I mean, these are the same people who accept the fact that Lewis, in Interview with the Vampire, is a plantation owner. Lestat is a French aristocrat. Armand has wealth. They all have wealth. I've never written about anybody that didn't have wealth. And the Mayfair witches are multi-billionaires. Um, the vampires have tons of gold. And somehow these people didn't like Ruben because he had a trust fund. I was amazed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was thinking that it would have made it kind of hard if he were, were working three jobs and yeah. had a family and stuff. If he turns into a werewolf, people are going to notice. You know? Absolutely. I would have become so bogged down in the economic realities of hiding his condition, I wouldn't have known where to begin. I mean, it just, it was very natural to me to deal with a person that was gifted and empowered and, and clear some obstacles out of his past so he could deal with his transformation. But I tell you, I think it's this. I think these readers, find it hard to take a contemporary character who's rich. They can take a historical character, somebody riding around in a carriage dressed in velvet, but they're just finding it very, very hard to deal with somebody in contemporary times. I mean, we've always had a terrible bias in American literature against rich people. Literature, high literature in America for years has been middle class, just almost to the point of doubtiness. You know, it's, it's, it's obsessed with the problems of the middle class. And people who write about the rich have never had an easy time of it in American literature, unless there's a lot of irony and criticism in their work. I mean, sort of supernatural monsters like vampires and werewolves and witches are often kind of associated with demonic forces, um, which doesn't seem to be the case in this book. I mean, do you... Not at all. Is is that something you were kind of going for that... Definitely. I, even in the vampire novels, they're not demonic. You know, they can't find any devil to take orders from. They're on this planet trying to puzzle this out just like the rest of us. And, and that's why I think, you know, the vampire is such a powerful metaphor for the outcast in all of us. You know, if, if he's got all the answers, if he sees a devil, if he responds magically to garlic and crosses, well, that's not as interesting to me as a vampire going around asking questions and trying to find answers just like we do. And the same with Reuben. And and one thing that was really fun for me to work with with Reuben is Reuben isn't as tortured as my vampires. You know, I, I, I think this is one reason why some of my readers are just not liking the wolf gift as much as they like the Vampire Chronicles, because they like that torture. But I wanted something else. I wanted a more optimistic, strong, affirmative hero this time, who doesn't say he's damned, you know, who says, I'm going to find out what this is about and what the evolutionary history is behind this, where we came from, why we do this, and what are the risks here. And I was really ready for that 
some affirmation. I mean, I, I kind of done, I'd done the regretful vampire to death in 12 books. Okay, so do you think you're going to write any more stories about werewolves? Oh, yeah. I'm, I want to go on with Reuben. I want to explore um, some other mythologies and questions and really get into all kinds of problems. You know, I don't know if a book is going to be a series until I'm finished with the book. And I have to see what happens in my mind afterwards. And I have so many things I want to do with Reuben and the other characters that I, I'm pretty sure this will be a series. Uh, and are, are there any plans to turn any more of your stories or novels into movies? Well, The Tale of the Body Thief uh, with Lestat has been optioned by Imagine, uh, Ron Howard and Brian Grazier's company, and they're they're working on it. They're developing a script right now for a new Lestat movie. And I hope they'll be, you know, moving to a studio soon for backing and begin talking about casting in some serious way. The Wolf Gift is prompting a lot of interest and a lot of discussions, and their meetings scheduled, I think, this very day in Hollywood. So maybe I'll hear something good on that later today. I don't know. You know, these talks can go on for years. I mean, it's been how long since the last movie based on my Vampire Chronicles? And and it, it just takes, it's exhausting. It takes so much time. It's It's never been rapid fire for me. My works, are, I think, are a little too hard to interpret. Uh, and finally, just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Uh, no, just that I'm going to go right on writing. And, and uh, you know, the next novel won't be about Reuben, but there will be a novel right after that that will be about Reuben and the Wolf. But it's too early for me to talk about my next book. It, it might fall apart. You know, <laughs> I talk too much about these books and then they don't work out. Um, you know, I wish I hadn't. So, but it, it's a supernatural novel, and it's about the classic monsters, and and I'm deep into it already. All right, great. So, uh, Anne Rice, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you guys for having me, and take care. And that was our interview. So, thanks so much to Anne Rice for joining us on the show. And for the second half of our show today, we're going to be chatting about horror with our good friend Jordan Hammersley London. She's an assistant editor at Grosset and Dunlap, an imprint of Penguin Young Readers, where she edits Adam Troy Castro's middle-grade horror series, Gustav Bloom, Anne Hood's time travel series, The Treasure Chest, an upcoming collection of scary stories from Ben H. Winters, and more. She's the former assistant editor of Lightspeed, a science fiction magazine edited by my co-host, John Joseph Adams, and she's also an avid reader of horror fiction, and much of her undergraduate work involved studying the American horror film. So, Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. <laughs> okay, so uh, first of all, I just thought, uh, you know, just segueing from our Anne Rice uh, interview, you know, Jordan, you had told me that you had been a big reader of Anne Rice when you were a teenager, and I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got into Anne Rice and uh, kind of what, what your impressions of those books were. I started reading Anne Rice my freshman year of high school when I was a very sad, lonely girl wanting to express my inner darkness, and I found interview in the free book room in my high school. So I picked up the interview and read that and devoured it. And then I went into Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned and read them all. I think that when I was when I was a freshman and a lot of the people I was friends with, there was this whole idea of being confused about sexuality. And in Anne Rice's books, they're so sexual without their being actual sex because her vampires don't have genitals. And so it was kind of a safe way to think about and talk about sex 
and gender identity without it being real. Wait, so what happens to their genitals? <laughs> uh, weren't they weren't they people at first? Yeah, I'm not I don't quite remember and this is something we might have to confirm, but her her vampires don't have genitals. So they can't have sex. And so the point is that they have it's like a sexual release as they are biting a human. Mm-hmm. But because they're they're immortal and there's a lot of guy vampires in this series, so it's just rampant <laughs> with homoeroticism. I always found it interesting, especially then looking at Twilight, where it was all about those vampires, all they do is have sex. Like, literally have sex. To the point of birthing vampire babies. Well, you know, Anne, Anne Rice said in the interview, you know, she was talking about how progressive her attitudes are. And I get the feeling Stephanie Meyer has more sort of conservative values. I mean, does that, do you think girls who are reading the Twilight books are getting a different kind of um, subtext or sort of message from than from the interview with the vampire? The Stephanie Meyer message is much more conservative because there's a lot of Edward refuses to have sex with Bella until they're married. Although Bella doesn't want to get married, which is something I feel a lot of people don't comment on much. She's desperately in love with this guy to the point of being like suicidal, but she still won't marry him because she doesn't want to get married at 18 because she thinks you should be older when you get married. So I find that whole thing really interesting, uh, but she desperately wants to have sex with them and so they get married. But I do think that it's really preaching a an abstinence approach to sex. But then when you read that fourth book, she has this horrific birthing scene, but their sex scene before that is insane. Edward's like ripping pillows and the entire bedroom is ripped to shreds and Bella's completely bruised and beaten after it. And then once she becomes a vampire, I think there's a comment where she's like, oh, now I get why you guys have beds even though you don't sleep. Because (laughs) the whole house, just this house of vampires, all they do is have sex. So I found that really interesting that once they got married, it was like a sexual free-for-all. But before that, it was very, I'm just going to stare at you while you sleep. (laughs) Uh, And creepy. So uh, there's definitely, it's definitely very different. So when you were reading Anne Rice as a teenager, I mean, were your friends into it too? Or was it something you were doing alone? Uh, No, I I actually never had friends reading it. I think that I I was very weird as a teenager. And I was reading Stephen King and Anne Rice. And I think it kind of freaked people out. I had a journal that was like red and black and fake blood and said Dracula on it. Like I was... I, I was desperately clinging to this idea that I was some dark, tortured teenager. But reading has always been a very personal thing for me, and, and I get it's tough for me to talk about it with people. I get really defensive. I, I really read a lot of dark stuff because I just I needed to have somewhere to go that was dark, I guess, without, like, it was just a fun escape for me because school was so difficult and not fun for a lot of the time that it was I enjoyed going and reading about these magical people who could bite people. Carrie was the big one for me, though. I read Carrie freshman year, and I was like, if only. (laughs) 
Okay, well, I mean, actually, speaking of Stephen King, that kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was, you know, Anne Rice mentioned Richard Matheson, and he's one of my favorite authors. And uh, I hadn't actually realized that he had had a, such a big influence on her. I mean, I know that he had a big influence on Stephen King. Stephen King sort of said that Richard Matheson was the author he read where he realized, like, wow, gothic monsters like vampires don't just have to be in castles in Transylvania. They could be in your local A&P. And that's, right. that sort of Stephen, became Stephen King's thing. And then, you know, Richard Matheson's vampire novel, I Am Legend, uh, you know, George Romero wanted to film that, but he couldn't get the rights to it. So he made Night of the Living Dead instead, you know, with a very sort of similar premise. And so just the fact that Matheson had that kind of a profound effect on Stephen King, George Romero, and Anne Rice is pretty amazing. And especially considering, I think, that he's not particularly well known uh, to the general public, I don't think. I Am Legend just won the Best Vampire Novel of the Century Award at the Stokers last week, two weeks ago. They had a, a, a poll to vote on the most important vampire novel of the last century. But I Am Legend won, apparently, by leaps and bounds. Well, and there have been a lot of attempts at filming I Am Legend, too. Well, they all change the story. It's it's kind of funny. It's like the best vampire novel of the century, and they change it completely every time they try to film it. Why don't you just film the best vampire novel of the century the way Not it's yet. written? I mean, none of them none of them actually bear much resemblance to the you know story. I mean, except for the general premise. You know, uh, yeah. I think the first one is probably the closest. Uh, I guess there's three movies, and then I think there was a television adaptation or something, which I never saw. But um, all three movies, yeah, they they diverge wildly from the book. I mean, they're not even vampires in. The Omega yeah. Man or the Will Smith movie. They're not vampires in the Omega Man? No, they're mutants. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right. And in Will Smith, it's because like zombies we, or something. we tried to, we, we cured cancer and got zombies instead. Yeah, I thought they were terrible in there, regardless of what they were called. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, they probably could have called them whatever. I mean, I don't know. They didn't really bear a whole lot of resemblance to zombies. It's just that, like, zombies where the in the zeitgeist at the moment and you know as opposed to vampires uh, or much more so than vampires and so they're like oh they're going to be zombies you know um, speaking I mean, of that whole zeitgeist thing i will say justin cronin's the passage they're they're called drax because they're vampires but when i read the passage all of the descriptions of those monsters to me were zombies i find it interesting that he chose to call them vampires because when he was writing it and when that book sold, vampires were big. <laughs> but it came out when zombies were popping. Because they're so clearly zombies to me. Because it's not just about blood. And so I just, I, I, The Passage is an interesting book in my mind. But that's the thing that drives me crazy about it is it's touted as this giant vampire book. And for me, they don't seem like vampires at all. They seem like zombies. But yeah, if you don't know, I Am Legend, the basic premise is that there is the, the last human being alive on earth and he's holed up in his house and there's vampires. Everyone else has been become vampires and they just come to his house every night and taunt him and try to get him to come outside so they can turn him into a vampire. But the thing that, that really struck me about that book when I read it, and I think it's one of the first books to do this is it really takes, like we were talking about in the interview with Anne Rice, sort of a scientific approach to these mm -hmm. supernatural monsters that, you know, and the, the main character is a scientist and he's trying to figure out, the science behind vampires and whether there's some way you can use that against against them. And so, I mean, there are things like, well, why do bullets not kill vampires, but a wooden stake will? And there's some um, explanation in terms of uh, the wood has pores and 
somehow oxygenates the vampire's body and that kills it. Some stuff like that. I mean, it, it, it takes that kind of uh, biological, biochemical kind of approach to, to a lot of those things. Uh, and so I thought, I thought that was really, really cool and, and uh, you know, really made that book really interesting. But in a lot of subsequent things I've, I've seen, I've often found that when you introduce a little bit of scientific justification or scientific rationalization, it just unravels the whole thing. The TV version of The Walking Dead, they go to the C CDC and there's this kind of like explanation about how the um, zombies were created by some sort of virus or something. And and that was the thing where it just completely unraveled the whole thing for me because I just don't I'm, I just don't accept at any level that you could be infected by a virus that could cause you to like have the bottom half of your half of your body ripped off and you're just like crawling around with your guts hanging out and not you know still functional you know it just defies all biology whereas if if there's no explanation for how the dead are coming back to life it doesn't get into that at all and I don't even really think about it. The science can be use, can be interesting if it works and doesn't make you ask too many questions. But I also think that there's a lot of horror in the unknown. And part of, I think, what made the made vampires so scary and going into that whole religious thing is that you didn't know what it was and you thought it was a demon or something like that. The unexplained is is what terrifies me more than having a crazy scientific explanation. I have the same issue with the Stephen King Under the Dome book. Not to spoil anything, but when he explains the dome, I was furious hmm. because it's in the last hundred pages and I had spent, you know, 700 pages thinking, oh, it's just some unexplained phenomenon. And then it gets explained. And I thought it kind of took away from everything that had happened already. You know, Tim Powers has this really interesting thing he says where he says, you know, like sometimes he'll be lying in bed at night and kind of have this weird feeling like maybe there's a ghost, you know, standing behind him and he's afraid to turn in and look and see if there's a ghost. And the reason that he's afraid to turn and look is because regardless of whether it's a friendly ghost or a hostile ghost or whatever, it doesn't matter at all. But just the fact that a ghost is standing there would so discombobulate your whole sense of reality that that's really what the terror is. That, 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 mm -hmm that it would sort of unfurl this sort of bottomless chasm of incomprehension that you have. Yeah. Getting back to Richard Matheson, I picked up What Dreams May Come in high school, I think my sophomore or junior year, to read after I had seen the movie because I was big on reading books after having seen the movie because I live under the impression that the book is better. And I remember just thinking, this book is so much better than Robin Williams. What Dreams May Come follows a man who dies and goes to heaven and his wife commits suicide because she's so upset by everything. And instead of going to heaven, she gets sent to hell. And so the man goes on a journey through heaven and hell to find and bring his wife home to him in heaven. I thought one thing that was really interesting about that book is that it has a bibliography at the end of like a hundred book, you know, a hundred nonfiction books, uh, purporting to prove, you know, that there is an afterlife, uh, the sort of near death experiences kind of stuff that Anne Rice was talking about in the interview. And I think it's in that book that I don't remember if it's Matheson himself or somebody he knew or something, but somewhere, so, so, somebody talks about someone who was, um, terminally ill and 
um, you know, just terrified and was given a copy of the book and read it and it uh, made them uh, calm. I think I, I can definitely see that because the 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 heaven in that book is beautiful because it's kind of the heaven you make of, on your own. So you're not stuck hanging out with God and Jesus all the time. It's like you create your own perfect place to live out your time until you come back to earth, I guess. You know, there and there are very few fictional depictions of heaven. It's it's, it's a very hard thing to do because it's really hard for me to imagine a lot of people I know being happy no matter what happened to, you know, no matter what heaven was like, they're just sort of unhappy people. And so you're like, well, wait, if you go to heaven, does it make you into somebody else that is a happy person? Well, wait, that doesn't seem right. And, but Matheson, he does, I mean, certainly the best job I've seen of, you know, creating a heaven where you're like, yeah, I can see people being happy here. I mean, the one thing that really sticks with me is that you're like, well, wouldn't scientists be unhappy in heaven because they couldn't do science anymore? You know, like every, there would be all the answers. And, and he's like, no, 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 they can still do science in heaven. And you're like, well, would they still be unhappy because they're not contributing to the scientific endeavor? And he's like, no, no, like they still do science in heaven. And then their scientific dis discoveries are kind of like put into the dreams of people who are still alive on earth. And then that stuff gets published still. And I'm like, ah, that's, that's pretty clever. I mean, there's, there's stuff like that where he's really thought through, uh, how, how would you make different kinds of people happy? But I, I had sort of mixed feelings. I mean, about, you know, the idea of this book. Being sort of presented, you know, about the idea of uh, an afterlife being presented as a fact, because I mean, I don't believe that that's the case. That that's I'm sort of conflicted about that one. Like, should would I give this book to someone who was on their deathbed to calm them down? No, you know, believing that I was misleading them. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like there's any harm in it in in a situation like that, but I can see it leading to harm. I mean, um. I mean, like, like I, you know, like I know people who are elderly and they'll be, you know, diagnosed with cancer or something and they'll decide not to get treatment because the treatment is going to be very unpleasant um, and, you know, will prolong their life a couple of years or whatever. But they believe that they're just going to go to a better place. And, you know, that's a perfectly rational cost benefit analysis to make if, if there is an afterlife. But if there's not, it's it's a terrible uh, choice to make. Uh, well, on the other hand, uh, you know, e e even if there is no afterlife, in a lot of those cases, I mean, the treatment can actually be so horrible that you'd rather just be dead. Right. Well, yeah. Rather than have to endure it. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll stipulate in this case that the person is, you know, that they would make a different decision if they didn't believe that there was an afterlife. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, were you bothered at all that his wife gets sent to hell because she kills herself? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the that's because that's the standard uh that's the standard thing. Like, you know, in Christian philosophy, you know, it's like if you commit suicide, you go to hell. Well, but Dave, if she went to heaven, there would be no story. <laughs> but my issue is that, you know, if the book presents a world in which there is a a moral order, sort of an overarching moral order, then it just doesn't seem it doesn't make any sense to me that Someone who's good, his wife, you know, and she just kills herself because she's uh, bereft. And then, we, you know, we want him to go to hell and rescue her and bring her back to heaven, which is where she belongs. Why didn't she just go to heaven in the first place? Then why didn't the overarching moral order make that happen? I mean, I guess there's stuff in the book, right, that it's a it's a very it's a very non Dante sort of hell, too. It's it's a sort of like um, hell is or like your afterlife is whatever you kind of imagine it is whatever your state of mind is. So she's kind of in hell because she, she can't like 
think her way out of it and he's able to talk her out of it. But right. it's still, it just bugs me that if there, you know, if, if there is a heaven, if there is some justice to the cosmos, this whole situation shouldn't have happened in the first place. Like, why does he have to talk her out of it? Why couldn't the celestial kingdom, you know, should they have people, should they have like social workers or something to, to do that? <laughs> why don't you write that story? <laughs> the social workers of the afterlife. Like Beetlejuice. <laughs> it's in Beetlejuice. Yeah. They have a social worker. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, speaking of Matheson and, and his film adaptations and whatnot, um, I mean, the actual, my first uh, exposure to Matheson, which I didn't actually learn until much later, was, um, you know, that it was Matheson, was uh, the movie Duel, uh, which was actually Steven Spielberg's first movie. It's this story about um, a guy who's, you know, uh, he somehow pisses off this uh, trucker, um, and uh, and then this trucker just chases him, like, you know, all over the place, you know, like in his car, you know. And actually, um, there was recently a, a Matheson uh, tribute anthology, uh, which actually goes towards uh, explaining what a big deal he is, even though uh, a lot of people don't know who he is. Um, yeah, Tor, uh, well, there was actually a small press edition first, but then Tor uh, released a sort of uh, trade edition of, of, of it's called, uh, I think it's called We Are Legend, or, or yeah. you know, it's called He Is Legend. He Is Legend. And so it's, um, you know, it's it's a bunch of famous horror writers, uh sort of playing in the worlds uh, Richard Matheson created. And uh, so Stephen King and Joe Hill actually wrote a sequel to Duel uh, called Throttle. Well, no, I mean, you know, Matheson worked in Hollywood for, for I think, most of his life. And so many things that he wrote, yeah, were either written for for film and television or were, you know, adapted from, from you know, fiction, from prose fiction that he wrote. I mean, just to name a couple adaptations, uh, you know, Stir of Echoes, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man, you know, the Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is awesome. It's the famous one with William Shatner where he uh, is on an airplane in a storm and the uh, engines fail on the plane one by one. And he looks out the window and imagines that he sees this sort of gremlinish monster uh, huh. ripping the plane apart. Um, so good. Oh, so Stephen King got the Langoliers from that, I guess. Uh, I would guess so, yeah. There was also uh, my favorite episode of the Twilight Zone revival um, in the 80s. Uh, it was called Button Button. Mm-hmm. And the premise is that a, there's a, a married couple and they're in financial distress. And a man appears at the door with a button. And he says that if they press the button, they'll get a million dollars. And someone that they don't know will die. I, I, I love that. They actually changed the, the ending completely from the short story. I think the ending in the TV show is actually much better. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. The, yeah, the and story's that was... actually The story's really good, though. Yeah. That was uh, just made into a movie like two yeah. years ago. Yeah, it was Richard Kelly uh, who did Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm. It was oh right, right. I haven't seen that. He had, uh, it's a little hard for me to imagine that turning out well, turning that into a feature length. Yeah, yeah. no, it wasn't. It wasn't very good. I, I I didn't actually watch the whole thing. I you know I started watching it and abandoned it at some point. Actually, Stir of Echoes. I thought they improved. The screenplay mm-hmm. was actually better than the book too. Um, that one, it's the, the movie. It's Kevin Bacon and he. Uh, uh, he he has a palm reading or something and, and starts having sort of flashes of psychic abilities and um, becomes convinced there's a body buried somewhere on his property. And there were a lot of things. It was really it's actually really interesting to read the book and then watch the movie because they took a lot of things that were sort of incidents that were kind of unconnected ran, uh, in incidents in the book and, and kind of tied them all together in, in the movie in a way that I thought worked a lot better. Uh, but so yeah, so I mean, when we uh, you were talking about having Jordan on the show. I was realizing that we've never actually had a guest on the show before who edits novels. 
So I thought we should talk to Jordan about that a little bit. And let's see. So we met Jordan years ago. This is actually when uh, John's anthology, The Living Dead, came out. And we did a reading at South Street Seaport, and, and I read my story of the Skullface Boy. And I guess Jordan was just so enraptured by it that she uh, had to come up <laughs> afterward and talk to me about it. And so, like, Jordan, like, at that time, you were sort of between jobs, right? Yes and no, but yes. Because I had spent my senior year of college interning at Tor as an editorial assistant. And then I went away for the summer to travel the world. And I came back and got a job at the bookstore in FAO Schwartz and did some minor agent assisting work for a lit agency and was desperately trying to find myself an editorial job. And so I was going to lots and lots of readings. And I saw the Living Dead reading in, I think, Time Out New York online and said, I'm going to go to this and try and talk to someone. <laughs> and um, you were very approachable, Dave. And John was very intimidating. I think he had just rejected my then boyfriend, now husband's short story, like, the week before <laughs> from FNSF. So um, I chose to talk to Dave, and then Dave was like, you should talk to John. And then I guess John and I started emailing each other, and we became friends, the three of us. And then I got my job, like, the next week, I think, two weeks later. I remember going up to John at KGB, hoping he would remember me, and saying, I got a real job. <laughs> but yeah, so how did you actually get a real job in publishing? Uh, I went to bookjobs.com and publishersmarketplace.com. Uh, they both have really great job boards. And I had, you know, interned with various people in college. So I emailed everyone I'd ever interned for and said, if you know anyone who's looking for an assistant, let me know. And so I had had some luck with that, but then um, I interviewed for my for for the job where I currently work at Grosset and Dunlap at Penguin uh, on Halloween 2008. And I don't know if you know this, but Penguin is known for their crazy Halloween parties. And I interviewed on Halloween, so I was stuck in the elevator with tons of people in costumes, and I was terrified that the person I would be interviewing with would be in costume, but thank God he was not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had an interview. It was for this children's publisher that I knew some about, but not much. At the time, I kind of figured out that they had done sticker books and movie tie-ins, but I couldn't really figure out much more. And then I had my interview and learned about how amazing the imprint was, and the publisher was brand new. He'd only been there for a month, and he was looking for an assistant. And so I got hired because we both really like musical theater and because I had had a year of internships behind me. So I started as the publisher's assistant, which is a lot of paperwork and making copies and reading slush, which is what I had done for my year at tour. I read a lot of slush. Could you explain what that means? So slush is unsolicited submissions. So Anyone who does not have an agent but wants to send their book or their manuscript to a publishing house will send us unsolicited submissions, and we call that slush. And it's usually up to the assistants to read the slush and determine if it's worth passing on to the editors or if we just reject it. And most publishing houses don't accept slush anymore. 
Uh, we do, but it's very rarely read, and we tend to have one day every six months when the entire editorial staff sits down and plows through all of the slush while we eat pizza. Well, yeah, well, let, me, let me tell you a story. Okay, so when I was uh, in my early 20s, I knew someone who was interning at a major science fiction book publisher, and she said, you want to just come over and see the offices? And I said, sure. And so she showed me the slush room, which is just like this small office, and there are manuscripts piled like literally to the ceiling uh, on every available horizontal surface in this room. And some of them had been there for years, it looked like. And they had some some interns, you know, reading them. And so I was talking to one of the interns and I said, oh, so um, who are some of your favorite science fiction authors? And she said, oh, actually, I don't read science fiction. And I said, well, why are you interning at a science fiction publisher? And she said, oh, I just went into the um, career services, whatever, at my college. And this is what they set me up with. I actually prefer mysteries. And I just thought, like, as a writer, like, oh, my God, I would send my novel to this publisher and then it would sit there for years until this girl got around to reading it and rejecting it, you know. And that, that really made a big impression on me that, you know, randomly sending novels to publishers who, ne who never heard of you is not the way to go. Hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you, is, is that, did I take the right lesson from that? I mean, yeah, I think that a very small percentage of books published come from the slush that is sent to the publishers. Just because editors are so busy doing things that aren't even editing that we don't have time to read a lot of the slush. And if we do, it's read pretty quickly. And if you don't catch our interest immediately, it's really easy to just say no because our, our lists are so full at, at any time. So uh, I, I mean, it should, it should be mentioned that, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that getting published as a first time novelist is hopeless. It just means that you should go to an agent first and have yes. the agent submit it to the publisher. And that's not considered slush. That's, that's, that's a, that's a different kind of submission. So when that, we're, yeah. what, we're, what we're talking about is just stuff that authors send directly to the publisher without representation. So yeah, because agents are the people who really call through slush for editors. And that's why agents are wonderful people because they read everything, um, that comes their way in terms of a query, which is a short two or three paragraph email or letter, but primarily emails now that's sent to the agent saying, this is my book. This is who I am. Do you want to read it? And the agent will say no or yes, depending. And then the agent could request the manuscript and read it. And if they like it, they'll say, great, I'll sign you up and we'll start submitting you to editors. Or they'll say, this needs work and no thanks. And sometimes they'll send comments, but other times they'll just say, this isn't working for me. Good luck on your path to publication. Yeah, it's actually kind of crazy. Like uh, I, you know, before I got into publishing, I would have never guessed that that agents uh, do so much editing before the book actually even gets to an editor. Uh, I mean, like I would have thought like, oh, well, you know, the agent will, uh, you know, read it and evaluate it on its merits. And then the editor would do all the editing if they acquire it. But uh, yeah, it never, never occurred to me that, you know, an agent would actually do work with you before it's, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is actually not even good enough to send to an editor yet. Let's, let's fix it before we send it to the editor, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. So, so Jordan, like how important was your like college major and um, your internship to getting a job and how did you get the internship? So uh, if it was that important. I have a BFA in musical theater, so um, I would say my degree did not do much for me, except that my then the boss who hired me was a huge musical theater fan. But I will say that I would not have had a chance if I didn't have internships. 
the way I got my internship is I went to book jobs and they have an internship tab and it just gives you contact information for every HR department. And I would go directly to publishers websites and find out who I needed to contact for internships. And I just sent out my resume everywhere in the hopes of someone picking me to come in for, to an interview. I really lucked out with Tor because I, the way I chose the publishers I wanted to intern with was I walked over to my bookshelf and picked out my five favorite books and then said, I want to intern at these places. And Tor was my first choice. And the, the, my interview at Tor was really overwhelming for me because the floor that Tor is on is just wall to wall books. It was like being walking into Willy Wonka <laughs> and, and instead of candy, it was every book I ever wanted to read ever. So, um, I really lucked out with Tor and I was able to, st I did that my f uh, fall semester of my senior year and they let me stay on through my spring semester until I graduated. So I was able to be there for a year. I read a lot of slush. I made a lot of copies, but I also, you know, would sit down with the editors and go, tell me what this contract means and what's an auction and, and really find out the editorial process beyond reading the book and writing comments. Because there's so much more that an editor does than just sitting down with the manuscript and, and editing it. it. It prepared me for when I got my administrative job, my editorial assistant job, where I was doing a lot of ordering copies for authors and sending remainder letters, which is the saddest thing an editor ever has to do. Hmm. And, um, and just prepared me for the grunt work that an editorial assistant has to do for the first two years of their life. Remainder means the books are just being thrown out, basically, right? Essentially, yeah. Uh, it's when the books have been sitting in the warehouse. We're not getting anyone buying them. And so we're going to, we're clearing out the warehouse. So we send a letter to the author or agent and say, we're remaindering this title. You can buy as many copies as you want at this extremely low price of a dollar or 75 cents. And then it gets sent out to uh, remaindering salespeople who buy books at the low price and just put them out in bargain bins and stuff. Okay. So you started out as an editorial assistant, but now you're yes. an assistant editor. Yes. What is actually the difference between those? Because <laughs> they sound kind of this, they both have the <laughs> word editor and assistant sound, in them. They do well, sound see, well, see, here's, here's the thing, Dave. In, in, in one of them, editor is the noun <laughs> and assistant is the adjective. And then in, in the other one, it's, it's vice versa. That's, that's the distinction I made because I started as an editorial assistant too and then became an assistant editor. And I'm like, well, before I was, an <laughs> now I'm an editor. So, you know, that's the difference. I mean, essentially that's it. There are a lot of it. There are a lot of assistant editors working in the publishing industry who still do a lot of assistant work. Um, I assist two editors currently working with their series, but I'm not doing much of the grunt work anymore. Um, I lucked out and acquired the Adam Troy Castro series pretty early on in my career, so it's kind of taken over my list. So um, my list consists of half and half original fiction and then half movie and TV tie-ins. So, uh, and I do preschool work. I used to do a little older stuff, but primarily I'm editing books based on Dinosaur Train and Small Potatoes, which are adorable preschool shows. And then in the series work I do, I get to do uh, books for eight to 12 year olds. So it's very, it's not what I ever expected. I always thought I would go and be some big science fiction adult editor. 
And now I'm um, this children's book editor who's obsessed with acquiring horror novels for children and scaring kids. So um, that's kind of how I'm known by agents. This is a girl who wants to scare the kids. <laughs> So, I mean, from your perspective in publishing, what is sort of the state of horror for kids, young adult? I think that we're in a really cool place right now for horror for kids. I think that vampires had their day and paranormal romance had their day. And now dystopia is happening, which is taking kids into a much darker place. And out of that, we're getting these really dark, pretty horrific stories coming out in the YA market. So the like 12 to 12 and up market. So there's a lot of books about serial killers right now uh, in the YA market that are pretty horrific. My favorite is the Dan Wells, I'm Not a Serial Killer series. I call it like, it's like Little Dexter. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a, he lives above a, a mortuary and his mother is the mortician. And he's learning about all of that. And there's a serial killer on the loose in his town. There's this other book that came out last year called Rotters. It's about a kid whose his mother dies and he has to move in with his father and he finds out that his father is a grave robber. And so he starts going on grave robbing digs with his father and finds out about the seedy underworld of grave robbing. It's really gross. There's a lot of graphic descriptions of what a corpse looks like when it's been underground for six hmm. weeks. And then, um, but there's some really dark and creepy stuff happening for the eight to 12 year olds. And that's kind of my sweet spot that I focus on right now. I'll say August is a great month for middle grade horror. 2012 in August, there's a bunch of creepy books coming out for kids. Such as what? Gustav Gloom. Such as Gustav Gloom and the People Taker. Yes, by Adam Trey Castro, uh, which is my, uh, current work baby, uh, with, uh, adult science fiction and horror writer, Adam Troy Castro coming down to the, to the middle grade age range. And it basically follows this boy, Gustav Gloom, who lives in a house full of shadows, not ghosts. So basically, if your shadow doesn't like you, it can ditch you and go hang out in Gustav's house. And this girl, Fernie Watt, lives across the street from him. And the two of them form a friendship and get into lots of crazy, scary adventures in his house across the street. It's very creepy. The bad guy is terrifying. And we have, we just signed up two more books. So it's actually going to be a six book series, which is very exciting for me because the first book hasn't even come out yet. The villains get darker and scarier with each book. He's a very twisted man, that Adam Troy Castro. <laughs> Um, so two other really great middle grade, creepy, scary books coming out in August are um, the first one is The Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls by Claire Legrand. It's coming out from Simon & Schuster. It's horrifying and it has lots of bugs and really creepy illustrations. And that's all I'm going to say about that, but it's fantastic. And then there's another uh, horror series coming or horror novel coming out in August called The Sinister Sweetness of Splendid Academy. And while that is a very sweet and pretty title, it is very dark. I like to think of it as it's, it's Hansel and Gretel set in a, in a school and it's horrifying and dark. And so I think that these are really great examples of how eight to 12 year olds can find creepy things to read 
other than Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which has been out since 1981. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. And also thanks to Anne Rice for being on the show. If you have any questions or comments, please leave a message on the post for this episode over at wire.com. And you can find that by visiting our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 58. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.